In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today. Help us to set aside all the cares and woes and preconceived notions and open our minds and hearts to what it is you want us to hear and to understand and to, to get out of what is said. So we thank you for this opportunity to share our faith and, and our love with each other. So we thank you and we praise you in all things in Jesus' name. A couple things before we get into today's lesson. Uh, you might notice the handout uh, talks about the year 500 to about the year 1000, 1000 AD. The timeline will go all the way through to 1500. We ha I had to separate some of the subjects that I intended to give today because I felt that there was enough information there to cover two weeks to do it right. So today and next Wednesday, we'll cover the period that we call the only authority church. Now, that's my title, not something that's official. I'll get into that in a few minutes. What I'd like to do is talk a little bit about some things that we didn't quite cover or didn't cover sufficiently last week. And one of the things is the organization of the Bible. <clears throat> so many people have Bibles, and I'm sure many of you, like me, have over five or six uh, Bibles. Uh, they all say essentially the same thing, but sometimes the words are changed a little bit, and that's all right. Um, but the Bible didn't come, you know, all in one piece as we see it today. Going back to the Old Testament, which we talked about, I think, at Lake last week or the previous week, uh, the Bible of the Old, the Old Testament portion of the Bible was pretty much fixed as we see it today by the second century B.C., but it was done in two separate forms, the Hebrew form and the Greek form. Remember that after the Babylonian captivity, and actually previous to that, the Assyrian conquest of the northern part of Israel, people spread out and left Israel for other parts of the uh, Roman Empire and even beyond. And so over a period of time, when they would be educated in the local uh, schools and language, etc., uh, they spoke only Inga, Greek rather than Hebrew. And so they wanted their own, uh, they wanted the Hebrew scriptures in their own language. And so they uh, got together and translated the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek. And then they added a few uh, books, six books, and added a couple parts to a few others. But that was fixed by the second century B.C. Now, fast forward, you might say, to uh, the third or fourth century A.D. after the 
Edict of Milan and where Constantine uh, okayed the worship of faith and religion uh, according to one's choice, and he favored Christianity at the time, uh, the Bible began to be uh, looked upon, the, the Jewish Bible, uh, or the Hebrew and Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, was looked upon as the only source of information that was available. And so it was Pope Damasus that felt that we needed, the Christians needed their own Bible of more recent writings. And so he commissioned St. Jerome to make that choice and put together something that was equal to the Old Testament. Then St. Jerome had to make some decisions because there was a lot of writing. After the Edict of Milan, uh, the theologians that were developed, St. Irenaeus of Antioch uh, and uh, St. Ignatius, uh, St. Clement, uh, and of course, most of all, St. Augustine, wrote extensively. And then, of course, there were all of the writings from the first century and so there had to be some decision made. And St. Augustine felt that for the purpose to be equal to the Old Testament, he would keep only those, Bibles, only those books and writings that were completed during the time of the apostles. And that would be the first century A.D. And that would include 27 books that we have now in the Old Testament. Please understand, that doesn't mean that the church condemned or anything else that wasn't included. There is a lot of <coughs> thought that the church put down all kinds of secret writings and, oh, you know, this, I've <laughs> read all kinds of stuff that uh, the church reportedly did about writings that to suppress this and suppress that and so forth. That is not true. The decision that St. Jerome made in the early part of the fourth century was to take those writings that were written in the first century within the time period of the apostles, including St. Paul. So therefore, you have the four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, 13 letters of St. Paul, uh, three of, or two rather, of St. John, two of Peter, and then you have a number of, of other ones that are hardly uh, not well known. But I think it makes sense. Some words you've got to have a cutoff. You know, you can't just keep adding and uh, expanding because people then get confused and so forth. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that the writings that came after the first century uh, are wrong or suppressed by the church. They are available in many different forms. And I would highly recommend a book called The Fathers of the Early Church. And it is some of these great writings 
by a number of very, very <coughs> accomplished people. Okay. So, any questions on that? On the Bible? All right. Mike? Most of them were, yes. Well, it was, yes, they were written only in Greek and not in Hebrew. And then there was uh, a few things tacked on to the book of Daniel uh, and a few others, I forgot which, uh, minor additions, chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14 of the book of Daniel. Uh, was added on also, and so that is not in the Hebrew version of that book. Well, both of them are thought authentic. There's nothing wrong with either one of them, except that the people in Palestine around the second century refused to accept the Greek version because it was written in Greek and it did contain some books that were not originally written in Hebrew. That's all. And the New Testament was then confirmed and approved in one of the uh, ecumenical councils, I forget just one, which one offhand, um, and it came up again in another of the councils, and it was also approved as it was. For that reason, there had to be some logical cutoff date uh, for which books were included and which weren't included in the New Testament. And I think we should look at that uh, as a reasonable uh, decision. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. I had a question for Professor You were talking about duplications in the Old Testament, and there were multiple writers uh, that people in the north and the south had included it. Yes. And always in my Bible, the first five books are attributed to Moses being the author. And I thought, well, that didn't make it really a lot of sense to me. And everything you're saying makes sense. And if you look further, you know, it'll say David is the author, et cetera, et cetera. But why did it just simplify it that way? Well, that was the, and you got a good question. The question refers to what many people still think, is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Well, Moses had enough to do, and he was like 80 years old when he started out. So I think that, uh, and of course, if the numbers are correct, he died at around 120. Uh, no, <clears throat> that was the Jewish way of writing. They had to tack on some official name to make it acceptable. But the... Old Testament, particularly the first five books, and there's a lot of interesting history on that, uh, were not written down until around the 10th century AD, uh, BC, and then they were not written as scripture. 
They were written as histories. It wasn't until around the 5th or 6th century uh, BC that the priest Ezra took all of these histories, put them together, separated them by uh, subject matter, and then wrote or put them in the order that we have now. All right. But he noticed that there was no beginning. And so we believe, we're not certain, we believe that it was the priest Ezra that wrote the book of Genesis. And so that wasn't written until around the 5th century B.C. Therefore, obviously, Moses couldn't have written it. But it was Jewish custom and history always to tack on some famous name of some person that was so very acceptable. And that became part of a cultural thing. But when you get into the history of these books, that isn't true. Does that help you out? Okay. Uh, yes, Dick. The fact that the Protestant Bible does not include five books right. does not indicate that they think they're invalid or wrong. It's just a historical decision. Well, uh, yes and no. <laughs> Up uh, until the time of the Reformation, there was no Protestant Bible. All people, all Christians, used the same Bible. When Martin Luther and his followers, particularly Calvin, broke away from the Catholic Church, they wanted to do away with a lot of things that were Catholic in appearance. So that's why most Protestant churches do not have the image you know, on the cross. They have just the plain cross. They have no kneelers in their, you know, minor things. One of those things that they did away with was the use of the Greek version of the Old Testament. And they assumed, uh, or they took on the Hebrew version. That's all. It's the only reason. So they're not denying the validity of the No. That's right. That help you, that help you all to kind of better understand. Uh, we're you know we're not choosing what is right and what is wrong. There are other kinds of reasons for these decisions, but they get lost in history, and a lot of people get emotionally attached to one or the other and defend it under all circumstances. But that's kind of the basic truth of all of these things. We're not saying that the Protestant Bible is wrong. Well, there's a few exceptions, even to that. There are a couple versions of the, what we would call Protestant Bible. One is called uh, The Way, and the other one is Good News for Modern Men. It seems to me there's a third one. These are what we call uh, paragraph, uh, not paragraphs. Uh, now, uh, there's another word for it. Uh, escapes me. They were written for young people to understand the Bible. It was more like just taking, you know, some very difficult subject 
and uh, make it, making it easier to understand. They are not what we would call Bibles that are would lend itself to devotions or lend itself to adult study. So we would recommend that you not use those, but only for that purpose. It's not that they are wrong. It's just that the wording uh, can sometimes be misleading. But that's the only reason. So I hope that kind of clears things up. There has been no change in the Bible since the uh, 4th or 5th century A.D., and there will be no change in the Bible. That doesn't mean, as I've said many times, that other writings are not informative or sometimes just as good, uh, but the Bible has a very special meaning. It started out as histories, not scripture. In the New Testament, it started out as instructions, not as sacred writings. Paul's letters, and particularly Peter's letters, uh, mention that specifically. All that is written is written for our instruction. can't give you the exact quote for that, but that is the words used. So the Bible is a holy book simply because it contains the direct writing of wishes, not writings, but the direct wishes of God himself. All right. Okay, we don't want to go on to another subject, or do anyone has any more questions on that? All right. I like your questions, so please don't feel embarrassed or that you're asking too much or anything. It's always good to get them out, because if you kind of stew around with those same questions, that eventually is going to accentuate and, and take over. Yes. Yes, Madge. My father's Bible, uh, it's in red where Jesus taught. Why aren't they putting it in all Bibles? Well, that was one of the uh, <coughs> formats of uh, the old style of writing, okay? Uh, they would put important quotations uh, from particularly Jesus uh, and sometimes um, a few other people, but mostly of Jesus in red. And those are called rubrics, all right? Uh, from the word red, obviously. Okay. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, but they've gotten away from that in more modern times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Let's go on. <clears throat> One thing that we didn't talk about uh, is the development of the sacraments. And that's a very difficult subject to talk about because they all didn't happen to take the place that they have in church today. We look upon the sacraments, the seven sacraments, as the means by which God's graces flow from the church to its people. And the sacraments have a very interesting background in some ways. 
one of the things that a lot of people are not aware of is that if a sacrament is received without the proper uh, spiritual intention and understanding, then it is of no effect to the individual. If you look around at Mass, particularly on Sunday, you'll see people going up to Mass, receiving the sacred host, popping it in their mouth, going back and talking to people on the way back to their seat, uh, or looking around, or, you know, particularly young people who do not understand the meaning of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Uh, Unfortunately, there is no benefit to those people when they receive in that way. Or if children go up simply because their mother made them, and uh, or their father, and uh, they do not understand what they're doing, there is no benefit. There doesn't mean that they're committing sin. It just means there is no benefit whole purpose of all seven sacraments is to administer the graces of God for a specific purpose. Each one has its own purpose. All right. Now, the only ones that are mentioned very specifically in the New Testament are baptism and the Holy Eucharist, that is, the breaking of the bread and the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ and the receiving of that. That whole uh, situation goes all the way back to the time of Moses and the first Passover when God himself directed what the Passover was to be uh, for, what it consisted of, what foods were to be eaten, and particularly the fact that the sacrificial lamb had to be consumed. And that is still true in uh, the Seder service of the Jewish faith today. If you do not consume uh, the sacred um, meat, that is the lamb, then you have not fulfilled the obligation of observing the Seder. The same thing is many people will go to uh, Mass but not go to Communion. I know of one particular gentleman who has done that for years. Um, I don't know him well enough to uh, confront him with why. Um, And so it has been a, a kind of a question in the back of my mind why he goes to Mass every single day but does not receive communion. There may be some impediment. Uh, I have no way of knowing. I hate to interrupt him uh, or confront him with why because it's none of my business. But I'd like to help the poor gentleman out if I could. Nevertheless, if we receive any of the sacraments without the proper intention and disposition, They are of no benefit. Like I said, in the Bible, the only two sacraments that are mentioned are baptism and the Eucharist. 
The others came along much later after the writings of Paul and Peter and so forth of the New Testament were analyzed and the theology from them was developed. And in the early church, in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, many things were called sacraments. Virtually everything that was of a holy nature was called a sacrament. And in one of the ecumenical councils, uh, that had to be sort of narrowed down and defined. And that is when the sacraments were initially defined in the way that we receive them today. And it was decided that they would use the number seven because seven in Jewish thought and most of the fellows that uh, did the decision were from Jewish background uh, that seven was a complete number. And so the, the sacraments that we have today uh, are considered the sufficient number of means by which God's graces are dispensed to the body of Christ. Everything else that was formerly, you know, the, the rosary, uh, crucifix, certain statues, uh, certain devotions, etc., are called sacramentals, which have blessings along with them, but they are not at the level of the sacraments. Any questions on that? All right. Hmm? Oh, yes. That particular question has been asked over and over and over, and it's been decided over and over, but in different ways. Uh, so you're asking a very important question. We have to look at it as, what do we do for our infant children right from the day they're born? We look at their physical health primarily. Uh, health and comfort. The same the church feels is necessary for their spiritual development as well. That you couldn't do anything better in a spiritual sense than have the child baptized right <clears throat> from the early days of his or her birth. And that's simply the answer right there. All right? We feel that for spiritual reasons, it is the best. Now, there's a lot of mystique that says, you know, if the child isn't uh, baptized and he dies, uh, he or she will go to where? Limbo and all of that. No, no, no. You know, let's, let's not get into that kind of stuff. No. If the child dies without serious sin, it's going to go to heaven. Don't be concerned about that. But we feel that by baptizing the infant, uh, we're more sure of that. And it is the natural uh, 
Catholic or Christian way to do. That is one of the purposes, yes. All right. But don't get hung up with that. For a while, I know when I was a child, that was the only reason. Well, that isn't true today. Uh, baptism is one of the three sacraments of initiation. All right. And it, its main purpose is to have us enter into uh, communion with the Catholic Church. That's that's true. Yes, that's a very good point. Uh, baptism does help uh, guard against attacks by the devil. But then again, an infant is not going to be attacked by the devil. Uh, yes, but not, you know, certainly before the age of uh, understanding right from wrong, you know. Well, that's true. Yes, that's true. Okay. Um, so, but baptism is a very important thing. We are not, this whole idea of original sin has, actually there's, there has been wars over that particular subject. Uh, when we get into uh, two weeks from today, when we talk about the Reformation, uh, we will talk about wars that uh, came about over simple things like the meaning uh, and the purpose of baptism. Uh, the whole idea is it is primarily the initial sacrament of entree into the Catholic Church, even as adults. When adults uh, come into the Catholic Church, it is through the sacrament of baptism. And immediately, they will also receive the sacrament of confirmation. Now, what is the difference? Baptism is one of the three sacraments of initiation, as I've said before. Confirmation is also. It confirms the promise that the individual has made in his or her baptism, or the parents or godparents of the child if it was baptized as an infant. It also releases the graces of the Holy Spirit and gives us a push, you might say, towards the use of the Holy Spirit. That is the purpose of confirmation. And then at the same time for adults, they will receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. Now, we used to, years ago, I remember as a child, uh, my mother would say, did you go to Mass in Communion? Or somebody would say, well, I went to Mass in Communion. Well, since Vatican II, that way of speaking has been eliminated because the entire Mass is the sacrament of the Eucharist. So you cannot separate the two. If you don't go to communion, 
than your effect and the graces that you would receive from the Mass are null and void. You have not completed the full Mass. That doesn't mean that you committed another sin. Don't get hung up on a lot of that. But it's important that you understand the idea of Mass includes communion. Years ago, it was a very common, I remember uh, 30, 40 years ago, I was uh, attending a church on a regular basis where the priest would come out before Mass and says, anyone that can't stay for communion, uh, I will give communion to you now. You know, And that was a common thing uh, so with some parishes, not all across the board. Uh, Vatican II stopped that. You cannot receive communion outside of Mass with one exception, and that is in the event of death or inability to get to the church, physical or mental inability to get to church, then you can receive. But not out of just convenience. No. That is not permitted. Yes, Nick? If you're mentally unable to understand, you can still receive communion? Uh, well, it is not recommended. But... You know, sometimes, especially where I live, um, it's questionable, you know. So you got to be careful with that. And it's better to give the benefit of the doubt to the individual. Yeah. So. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I have a friend. I was just talking to uh, Justin here. She, If she's in the line going up to take the sacrament, or communion, as I call it, uh, if she isn't in the line where the priest stands, she'll move over. Is that sort of superstitious or what? Yeah, there's who you receive the host from yes. has no bearing on the quality of the sacrament. That's what I tell no. her. And she says, oh no, Madge, these people, they haven't been ordained to give it. So I, did, I let her go on and have her own way. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's all right. You know, there's nothing wrong. She's she is incorrect. Let's put it that way. I don't like to say she's wrong. It, it is incorrect the way to to think that. But you know, there's nothing. Yeah. You know, I'm not one to say everything's a little sin and you that kind of stuff. Oh, I don't judge her. I just let her go on her way because I heard the Eucharist ministers. They have been fixed, so they can be, uh, be able to give it. Just yes, they've been fixed. All right. What if, uh, what, what if there's no what if there's no priest and we just have communion service? Yeah. Well, even that now has been strictly, uh, severely limited. All right. It used to be that almost anybody could do a communion service, and that was for a short while after Vatican II. Uh, but that's been clarified by Pope John Paul II that that cannot be done, all right? It has to be very, very strict guides on that, and it has to come from the bishop, not just the local priest, okay? So, for example, today, uh, or this week, most of the priests from this diocese 
our, our meeting for their quarterly uh, get together. Uh, I, I call it one thing, and they call it something else. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and there are no priests available to say mass. Well, that doesn't mean that somebody can get up and, and do a, a communion service. No, not anymore. For a while it was, but after Vatican II, there were a lot of questionable things tried, and that has been straightened out. Yes. I thought in those remote parishes where the priest doesn't get there by once a month that they could have communion services regularly. No, they can have communion that comes from another parish, but they cannot have a separate communion service unless it is okayed by the bishop. Okay. Yeah. Not not the local parish the priest, but the bishop. Yeah important. Let's see what else. One of the things that I wanted to talk about last time and I kind of glossed over it a little quickly was the development of theology uh, during the period that we discussed primarily last week. That is the year uh, beginning in 313 with the Edict of Milan and up to the sort of uh, demise of the Roman Empire towards the end of the 5th or 6th century. Um, theology was extremely important to the development of the church because it was through the understanding of the writings, particularly of uh, Paul and Peter and some of the others uh, from the apostolic era, the 1st century, and some of the later writings that we call Fathers of the Church. And as those began to be understood, uh, the whole idea of the Mass took on a, a different understanding and importance to the Church. And it was sort of uh, removed from the evening dinner table uh, of the early first century uh, to the sacred ceremony uh, that we have today. But it was not officially um, worked out as to which readings or which songs or what format it would take except for the consecration of the bread and wine and the communion. That comes right from the Bible and has never changed. Uh, of course, the wording has changed from Latin, uh, from Aramaic or Hebrew uh, to Greek to Latin to English and all the other languages. So yes, you will hear a few slightly different words here and there, but primarily the words of the consecration are essentially the same for everybody across the world. And that is... Uh, a rule that a lot of priests don't follow, but they are supposed to read the words out of the lectionary um, or the sacramental uh, book that's on the, on the altar. They are not supposed to give it uh, from memory because that is why and how different words slip in over a period of time. 
So the rule is that they are to read. So if you see a priest up there who you know has been saying the same mass and same format for centuries, well, you know, for, <laughs> it seems like centuries, uh, you know, for many years, and he's still reading it, you know, it would appear that he doesn't know, you know, can't remember. The rule is he's not supposed to remember. He's supposed to read it so that all of the readings are the same. Just a minor, minor point. One of the other things that has plagued the church right from the very beginning is the heresies. The heresies were started at different times. We gave you a list, I believe, last week. Um, and those were just the important ones. There are several others, but they're mostly uh, adaptations or minor adjustments to those that we already listed. But the heresies were started by pretty much uh, men of good intention, but they got carried away. And many people followed them because they were very persuasive. I can't go in, and I don't want to go into anyone in particular. Uh, Mr. Parthenel, uh, she's not in here today. Poor man's looking for his wife. They were started, as I said, by good intention people who got carried away with their own ideas. And in the early days, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, when communication was so difficult and uh, strung out. It took months to get letters across uh, from one country to another and so forth. Um, these heresies would be promoted by individuals. Even though they were wrong, they seemed to be acceptable by some people. And they would gain... Uh, various followers and became a real problem. We can really look at most of the heresies as being uh, promoted by the devil in one way or the other. As I've said before, the devil, and we don't want to get into a lot of that kind of spooky uh, speculation, uh, generally does not attack individuals. Yes, there are some, but that's extremely rare. Most of the devil can go through people who are, or groups of people who are basically wrong. And even though they have some things that sound correct, some parts of their uh, belief system or ideas are partially correct, but the basic uh, ideas are wrong. And if you really get into some of the histories, uh, they're very interesting. Uh, so they're very uh, exaggerated. Some of them, the ideas of, uh, was Christ really human? Or was Christ really divine? That was, that's one of the main, uh, heresies. Uh, how could, uh, the Trinity be three persons? Uh, how can you have three di distinct persons 
in one idea. And of course, the idea is that when people say that, they are thinking of human persons. And we don't mean human persons. We mean divine persons. Right? Three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are three separate divine persons, which makes up the Blessed Trinity. We don't fully understand that. No one does. But it is one of the main truths of our faith that God and I have given you uh, in your first handout that circular diagram which to the best of my ability uh, demonstrates how the Trinity can be three divine persons who operate together. There is no uh, distinction or um, debate between them. The love of one circulates through all three. Um, and that's very important. Many of the heresies, though, question that and seriously questioned it to the point of debate and even to the point of war. When we get into the Reformation, there is a phrase that is used of wars that are of more than religion. And that pops up over and over and over because it was more than religion that these wars were developed or caused. So heresies were a main problem against the church for centuries and to some degrees still pop up with the whole idea of the priests and bishops who are extremely liberal against those who are conservative. And over and over and over, the conservative side has always won out. God is behind the church and will protect it from all adversities. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to get into today's subject about, and I call it the only authority, church. <clears throat> With the breakup of the Roman Empire by Vandals, Goths, Franks, and a number of other uh, semi-savage tribes and groups, it seemed that society started to break down rather quickly because there was no law and order. There was no uh, authority as it previously was um, to decide who was right and who was wrong. And so most of the people appealed to the Catholic Church because it was the only organization that was still held together and had some uh, strict structure and obedience. So the church had to step in in many ways to help out with a lot of the decisions that really had nothing to do with religion, but because it was the only authority uh, recognized, now not always accepted, 
but at least recognized uh, as having some power and authority. The same thing happened in the third or fourth century BC when Alexander the Great died after conquering most of the um, civilized world of that time period. When he died at the age of 30, 30 or 33, I forget it was, rather young, uh, he had men strung out all over uh, Western, or rather Eastern Europe and North Africa. And when he died, there was nobody to say, well, what do we do now? So the people who were left in charge sort of took over and became the princes or the kings or uh, the rulers, the nobility of those areas that he uh, left them in or assigned them to. You had the same thing happen uh, over Israel. Antiochus IV was one of those uh, military people who then took on the name of Antiochus IV as a king or an emperor. And he tried to convert the people of Israel into the Hellenistic way of thinking. That's all uh, written up and uh, described in the first and second book of Maccabees and in the book of Daniel. So you have the same thing happening again in the fourth and fifth century uh, in Rome. You had people that were assigned by the Roman emperor and his people uh, out among all of the countries that we now call uh, Western Europe. And when the Roman Empire collapsed, these people said, well, what do we do now? So they did the best they could, and they became uh, the rulers of those particular regions. Well, that didn't always set well with one another. Where, you know, you've got a bigger uh, spot of land and less people, and I've got a lot of people but no land, and, you know, you have all of these kinds of rules. So what they did was appeal to the church. Over a period of time, the church became the only recognized authority in all of Europe and North Africa. And that had good points and bad points. Because with that, the church became saddled with a number of civic duties and responsibilities that had nothing to do with religion. And in many cases, religion seemed to take a back seat to what was going on um, politically. Uh, again, when we get into the period of the Reformation, this will all come out because that is really what caused a lot of the problem. You had all of this disagreement between uh, the nobility, I'll use that as a very general term, and the uh, papacy. And for a while, the papacy was in charge. After a while, the nobility got the upper hand. And for nearly a thousand years, 
you had this seesaw between who was uh, the most influential, who had the greatest power. And there were several wars, actual combat battles. You had even popes that would put on battle gear and get into the fight. Uh, most of it was for political purposes, not always for the best intentions of the church. And as we'll see as time goes on, how this really was very detrimental to the church, and yet the church eventually uh, won out. You kind of get the picture now how there is really no single country uh, in Western, well, all of Europe, I should say, and in North Africa. They're all they're kind of claiming authority for themselves, but they're not accepting the neighbor's authority. And that went on for almost a thousand years. The church eventually becomes both a temporal and a spiritual ruler, uh, and that got out of hand just as well. Now, this incident with the priest now, do you think that had ever happened in our church, the Catholic Church, now? Uh, I'm sorry, Madge, what do well, you mean? the instance that's happened with the priest now. Yeah, that is the Catholic Church. Yeah, well, is it going to affect the Catholic Church? In, in, a, in a way, yes, it is affecting the Catholic Church in many ways. And the Pope is now working on that, and it will take a little while for it to come out and be resolved. Uh, but it'll probably never be resolved to everybody's liking. That's the unfortunate part. Um, you can't get everybody to agree to any one thing. Yeah. Uh, you had the discussion of this uh, influence of St. Augustine of Hippo. I thought, I thought uh, Hippo is in North Africa. It is. Alexandria is in Egypt, right? Yes. Which is North Africa. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Alexandra, Alexandra doesn't exist in the same way it did, you know, back at that time. Yeah, it's Cairo now. Yeah. Uh -huh. But Alexandra is North Africa. Yeah. And there were a number of very influential people came from North Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, and there were two St. Augustines, so you got to be careful. And that's why they always use hippo there. Yeah, has nothing to do with hippopotamus. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's 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 kind of move on. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that really affected Christianity in a very serious way was Islam. Beginning in the 6th century, early part of the 6th century, a fellow by the name of Mohammed, and there are other parts to that name which I uh, choose not to pronounce uh, because, frankly, you know, the method or way of pronouncing uh, some of those names is very debatable. 
Anyways, he began, as the heresies did, with certain theories that came out of Judaism and Christianity, but with several twists. And he appealed to the uneducated people who had desire to belong to something. You know, one of the greatest urges of human nature is to belong. We all have that. It is something that is built within us, and we all have a need to belong to something or someone. Uh, it's an overriding urge that none of us can uh, escape from. We can control it, but we can't escape from it. And the poor people, particularly those who are uneducated, uh, grasped this whole idea of this fellow Mohammed and clung to it. And uh, within a short time, Islam became a tremendous force, uh, stronger than any of the heresies. It was not looked upon as a heresy. It was looked upon as a separate form of religion. And even today, it is an extreme force. Now, if you read, if you read any of these books on Islam, they're all confusing and they don't agree with each other. And that goes all the way back uh, to the 6th and 7th century. Uh, different aspects of Islam as it spread out developed their own theories and understandings so that you have no particular central form of control, no central thought or creed. Uh, Islam just sort of grew like Topsy uh, and became an extreme force. In its original form, it was not radical. It had a number of very good concepts and understandings. But over a period of time, the devil or human nature who wants to always be uh, the top dog got a hold of it and would twist it around here and there to the point where today you have a number of radicals who claim to be followers of Allah and Mohammed. Uh, now, there's a big difference there. Allah is their term for God. Mohammed is the prophet to whom, according to them, Allah spoke to and created Islam. But it has become a thorn in the side of not only the church, but in politics in general. Uh, at one point in time, Islam became such a force that it practically overran southern Europe, particularly Spain. But by the graces of certain people, uh, certain saints, along with others, uh, they were routed out of control in Spain. But their other objective was to control Israel and the Holy Land. And that is what 
started the whole idea of the Crusades. And even though it's mentioned here, I think what we'll do is we'll wait until next week and get into a little bit of uh, more detail about the Crusades. Uh, they were both uh, good and bad uh, at the same time. They had good intentions, but moved into um, territory of selfishness and plunder so that none of the crusades could come out and say that the church or anyone else benefited from them. There were seven or eight uh, different writings will dispute the number of crusades. I don't really think that that's important. Uh, but the last one was not so much having to do with routing the uh, Muslims out of anywhere. It had to do more with the Pope and his fight against the Albigensian heresy, which at that time, uh, Muslim or Islam was considered also a heresy. It is not quite looked upon uh, that as today, or you wouldn't hear people calling Islam a heresy, but it is treated pretty much in the same way. Again, you got to be politically correct. Yes? Was Islam the religion Islam ever affiliated with Christianity? No. No. It popped up on its own? Well, the fellow Muhammad did take bits and pieces of both Judaism and Christianity. Now, it's interesting that he mentions Jesus and Mary in the Quran. In fact, Mary is the only woman in the entire Quran mentioned by name. Uh, and it was done very respectfully. So there are, you know, some good points about Islam. Unfortunately, the radicals have kind of blotted out that. And uh, today we think of Islam pretty much as a radical movement. Uh, and that's unfortunate because it did start out as something that was reasonably good. Not correct in our eyes, but reasonably good. Yeah. Yes. Quran for other religions? No. No, just Islam. Yes. That's what I thought, but I just... No, no. The Quran is only Islam's sacred book. Okay. Okay, any other questions? Yes. Muslim is the individual, the human, the, the people. The Muslims and Islam is their faith. Okay, yeah, it's just like Judaism, Hebrew, and uh, and there's another one that goes along with it. Oh no, Jews, Jews. Let's go back this way. The nationality is Israeli. The language is Hebrew. 
and the faith is Judaism. And that's where Jew comes from. Okay, you have a similar connection with Israel, and on Muslim, yeah. Ah. Yes. We have hope. You do? <laughs> Islam, it seems like every country has hope. Am I wrong? No. Iran, etc., etc. That there's a religious leader in the country? No. There's no religious single leader in Muslim or Islam. The same way with in Judaism, there is no single leader in Islam in Judaism, yeah, and that's unfortunate. And of course, that is why, although a lot of people object to it, that is why Christianity, the Catholicism, has remained so strong, is because of the central control. But the countries have a religious leader, but it's not available. No. I want to talk a little bit about how a person is declared a saint. Now, we all have heard that and seem to take it for granted that, you know, the Pope will declare somebody a saint. I use the word declare a saint because the Pope does not make a saint. Heaven forbid. The Pope does not make a saint. All right, the person himself or herself makes themselves a saint through their understanding of their role in God's plan of salvation and by the power of the Holy Spirit directing them, fulfilling them to a heroic level. That's what makes a person a saint. Now, in the early days of the church, up until around the 10th century. Almost anybody who was looked upon as a, quote, holy person was declared a saint. And sometimes retroactively, the church went back and said, this person or that person, for example, Mary Magdalene, uh, was a saint. Well, after a while, that got a little out of hand because, you know, anybody that gave a lot of money to the church must have been a saint, right? Uh-huh, no, 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 no. Uh, the purpose of giving that money had to be thought through and uh, was often found to be questionable. Right. So, around the 10th century, the Pope started to rein in this ability of who was to be called a saint and who wasn't. And through the period of time from the 10th to the 15th or 16th century, um, the rules changed a little bit. And in more recent times, the rules changed again, but very slightly. The primary reason, and remember back 
after Vatican II, there was a uh, big hue and cry because St. Christopher was dropped from the uh, role of, of saints. All right. The reason for his being dropped, that doesn't mean he wasn't a saint, but the reason he was dropped from the list or the canon of saints is because there is no record of there ever being a St. Christopher. So if you have absolutely no re reason or, or no uh, tangible things that you can hang on, then there should be no official recognition of St. Christopher or anyone else for that matter, except for people that are mentioned in the Bible. So it wasn't only St. Christopher, but there were a number of people that were eliminated from the canon of saints because there was no tangible documentation of there ever being one. It used to be that the local bishop or the local priest could declare somebody a saint simply because he or she led a very holy life. Well, as I said, that got to be a little out of hand. So in the 10th century, it was the Pope who officiated at the declaring of a person to be a saint. And between the 10th century and the 12th century, there developed a whole list of rules and regulations as well as format. And I won't go through all of the different reiterations of that, but as it is today, a person who is thought to be uh, worthy of sainthood has to have his or her cause submitted to Rome through the bishop of the territory in which the individual lived. No one else can do that. And somebody by the bishop is assigned to be, I forgot there's a particular name for it, uh, who is uh, the representative for the cause of sainthood, uh, of Saint X. I happen to know a fair amount of this because a very close friend of my family was the representative for the cause of the sainthood of Solanus Casey from Detroit, Michigan, who was declared blessed, which is the second major step in the process of sainthood. He was declared blessed last May in Detroit. Uh, the Pope was there, and it was a big celebration. <coughs> My family knew Solanus Casey and so forth and so on. I won't go into all of that. Uh, but it is a very interesting situation. Uh, as it is today, the bishop, as I said, has to submit uh, a documentation for the cause of canonization. And if that is accepted by the ruling uh, curia in Rome, that person is now declared a servant of God, and the process goes on. Sometimes it can be very quickly, as in 
St. Uh, Mother Teresa, a little over five years. Uh, John Paul II, less than five years. Uh, nevertheless, the process is pretty much the same for most everybody, uh, some few exceptions. Uh, but after the submission has been accepted in Rome, there has to be another complete investigation by a separate group of people onto the life of this individual. One of the requirements is that the body has to be exhumed or the remains of the body have to be exhumed and discovered. When the remains of or the body of Solanus Casey was exhumed because it was, you know, he was planted out in the local graveyard in the back of the monastery, and that wasn't any big problem. When they raised the casket, it was full of water. You know, Michigan, a lot of water. So the casket was full of water. They had to drill holes in the bottom of the casket in order to let the water drain out. And I have a video of this sometime. It might be interesting if I brought it in so you could see it. Uh, they, uh, when the casket was open, the lining, you know, the lining of most caskets, and everything else inside was rotted and shredded, uh, but his body was in perfect condition. After 57 years, I believe it was. Yes. Yes. There was no deterioration. There was some indications, increases of the body where the arm was folded, um, that kind of thing. But other than that, the body was intact. Well, you can't... Uh, you, you, you can't uh, resurrect anything that's been cremated. Yes? Why is it important to declare someone as king? I thought the reward comes later on once we pass on. And also, holy matters involves only inner states. Well, yes. Uh, you, but you've got, you brought up two different points. Let's take the one about St. Paul. Paul calls everybody who is a believer and is striving to live the right life, saints. That's a totally different connotation there. All right. Uh, our use of the word saint today is entirely different. All right. We don't use that because we hope that everybody is in the same way that St. Paul intended. Okay. But it's important because saints are examples of people who can um, demonstrate that they have reached a certain level and be an inspiration to others. That's the, the purpose of a saint. Okay. Now, saints do not work miracles. Saints can be intercessors for miracles to be worked. And Solanus Casey, in his case, many many. There is a small museum attached to the monastery in Detroit dedicated to Solanus Casey 
and many of the artifacts in there are from his time, including books. After a while, you know, he wasn't the brightest person. And so the bishop wouldn't allow him to um, hear confessions or to preach on uh, dogmatic theory of any kind. Uh, he could preach on something very plain and simple, but nothing of a serious nature because they felt that he wasn't, you know, really uh, bright enough. So in the monastery, they gave him the job as being the porter, opening the door because they had a big soup kitchen and uh, a lot of people, poor people, would come, particularly during Depression era. And uh, Solanus Casey would greet them and find out what they needed and then direct them to somebody within the monastery to help out. Gradually, as time went on, he would say, well, that's very simple. Why don't you just go home and, and uh, pray three our fathers or three in the Hail Marys, and your child will, will be okay. And after a while, they recognized that that was true. The child was okay. And so the, the abbot at the monastery asked him to start writing these things down, these little examples of they filled over 20 books uh, of documentation of things that had happened uh, as a result of his intercession. Right, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the time. We thank you for helping us to better understand our own faith. We ask that you help us to understand the importance of the Catholic Church, and we ask that you bless those who uh, are leading the Catholic Church, help them to do so with purity of thought and action. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name.